There we are. Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? Hello, Mr. Real. How are you? RFM, if I was any better, there'd be two of me. I think there are two of you well, right now on this why, screen. Why is that? I don't know, because I'm your alter ego. No, no. Are you my alter ego? This is like mirror, mirror. Yeah, for every for Star for Trek, I'm your evil twin in the other dimension. For everything I don't. by the bird. The beard. You said Star Trek? Yeah, it's, it was a show back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. You only like the one from the 60s. That's the only one. Yeah, well, there that, is no other Star Trek. Captain Picard would disagree. People say it's, that they're Trekkies. I'm not. I'm a Kirky. Yeah, you you stuck with that original one that ran for what, four seasons or something? Trace. Three seasons. That's because it wasn't that great. 69. Right. In case anybody's keeping track out there. How long did the next generation run? It ran for like. Uh, oh my gosh, I have no idea. Real successful. Uh, one episode was too long for me. <laughs> I, um, I gave it a try. Talking about the opposite of one episode was too long for me. Uh, you've got a project you're working on right now. I know when you got a guy on the bridge named Number One. Already, I got a problem with that. Yeah, you, you can't really tell him you got to take a number two, right? I've got to take a number two. Number one, watch the bridge. Well, all that stuff should be happening off the bridge as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so the, the projects, you must be talking about Mormon Sunday School, which is a brand new channel under the Mormon Discussions Podcasts, Inc. umbrella. And look, there is a thumbnail for the first one that dropped last weekend. I'm working furiously, even as I speak, well, at least today. On the second episode, getting the slideshow ready for that, I'll record that. That should be out this weekend. Once again, there's following the Come Follow Me manual a week in advance so that you can be prepared for church should you choose to go, and you can have a different uh, take on Sunday school. The tagline for the podcast is um, where you learn about the stuff you're never going to hear in regular Sunday school. And the second, the second podcast, also on its own unique channel, also under the Mormon Discussions, Inc. umbrella, is Brush Up Your Shakespeare. Yeah, You're sorry. getting me confused there. I know. My screen was doing something weird. I'm trying to switch over, and it kept flipping back. So Okay. Because, you know, I have epilepsy. You're about to trigger me there. <laughs> I'm really so, sorry. Yes. And we're starting with Hamlet. This one is also dropped. Now, this one is not doing quite as well, he said, chastening the audience. This one is not doing quite as well as... Uh, the Mormon Sunday School, but we hope for it to uh, pull in a bigger audience as time goes by. This one is not Mormon-centric. I don't even say the word Mormon. Yeah, and I'll just say I've listened to both of them. I really enjoyed them, but my favorite was the Shakespeare. The Mormon Sunday School is great, but the Shakespeare one, I think you are just made for this, and uh, I really loved it. And yes, I mean, it's going to be a little harder to pull kind of our, our Mormon audience into it. But I think over time, this will grab a general audience who uh, wants to brush so. up on their Shakespeare. Potentially well, much, much larger audience. And I think you're for this one, it is kind of like a brand new baby podcast that you kind of have to start, you know, from scratch with. But I I, I hope you keep it up. I, I did enjoy it as well. I think you have a great voice, especially. And so I think, yeah, I think that's once enough, uh, once it gets enough attention, I think. Well, thank you. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now, for those of you who are purists out there, I first want to thank Bill Real for doing the AI art on this, as well as on the um, the other uh, Mormon Sunday School uh, thumbnail. 
up at the top. But here, I have no idea what that was, but let's not go back to it. Here, <laughs> on the um, on the Hamlet one, you got that one? That's the one. See up there on the top? Okay. Yep. Okay. We're going without a net tonight. I can tell. Wait, on this one, where we've got... What were you wanting it to be on the screen? I have no... This one right here. Okay. Sweet. Okay. So we've got... This is Hamlet. He's holding the skull. You know, alas, poor York. I knew him, Horatio. For the purists out there, I am aware that he should be wearing black. All right? But we're switching it up a little bit. We're trying to make Shakespeare a little more interesting, easy, fun. And so we went with this. So there. Yeah. Um, I'll just show... Just folks, these each have their own YouTube channel. So if you haven't checked these out and subscribed, you could just go on to YouTube, look up, brush up your Shakespeare, should be able to find it. I will, or Maven will put the links to the channel in the chat. Unfortunately, because it's from a song, right? From Kiss Me Kate. So you, And other people have riffed on it and named things after it as well. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm late to the game. So you're going to come up with a lot of other stuff. But if you go to this address, brush up your Shakespeare, brush up your Shakespeare, dot org you'll find it that's where i live and move and have my being yeah okay i can put that in but i'll also put the youtube link in yeah. and i'm getting it it's the third thing that pops up for me if you just type in in the youtube search bar brush up on your shakespeare oh, that great. might be i don't know maybe the algorithm but i that thing that's great anyway. i won't i won't stop until i'm number one and I, I would just say, I think YouTube is going to be the easiest way to access these because it'll be the video version. The websites, mm -hmm. like you said, brush up your Shakespeare, sorry, brush up your Shakespeare.org and then mormonsundayschool.com are the two websites where the podcast audio will be. Um, but you can do a search for either of those on YouTube, find the video version, subscribe to the channels, follow along and watch uh, Radio Free Mormon sort of perform i really really enjoyed both of them so i think folks will get uh, quite a bit out of these thank you so much as much as i'm enjoying talking about me and how wonderful i am we do have a spectacular guest on tonight's show and i don't want to put that off any longer her name is summer rain this is mormonism live episode 161 the title of tonight's show is growing up black in mormonism and, and here's our guest summer rain you'll have to unmute yourself there summer I'm Are you making fun of me already? <laughs> you're on the show five seconds and you're making fun of me. Sorry, guys. I'm unmuted. Hello, hello. I'm so um, grateful to be here today. Well, it's great. Uh, it's great to have you. So is this true? You did grow up black in Mormonism. I did. I, I grew up black and I grew up in Mormonism. So both are true. Yes. Well, I know you've got a lot of stories to share with us. Uh, meaning the high points, perhaps low points, significant points in your journey in life, also in your spiritual journey as well. And you're ready to start sharing with us. And I know our audience is really anxious to hear about those. So I will give you the floor. Awesome. Well, we've got some pictures too, to kind of go with the story. So it's going to be fun. Um, my name again is Summer Rain. My parents converted to the um, gospel, the LDS gospel, when I was three years old. Uh, my father played in the um, NFL. He was drafted first round 13th overall to the New York Jets. And then he was traded over to the Oakland Raiders. Um, that is a Raiders pick right there. 
Um, he was a DB, so that's a pretty big jump. If you guys know it, a defensive back. Also, if I use too much football lingo, let me know because I, I might slip into that. But he was a defensive back. So this was an interception. Um, and then we have another picture, if you guys want to put that one up, of one of the best plays ever. A uh, little face mask there. <laughs> and this was actually not called. This was back when uh, you could break legs and break necks, and they would not call it. So that's my dad, number 22. And that's Burgess Owens, correct? Burgess Owens, yes. And he's he playing was, for the Jets there. He's playing for the Jets there. He played with them for seven years. And then he was traded to the Oakland Raiders in 80, and they became the first wild card team to go to the Super Bowl. So that's really fun. Can you tell us a little bit more about this picture? Is it true that your dad got ejected from the game after this flagrant violation of the rules? No, actually, um, they put the ball down behind where his left foot is and where Pruitt's left foot is and said, oh, yeah, you know what? This was a perfectly fine defensive play is what they said exactly. back then. Back then. <laughs> now you can't even hit a quarterback below the knees. But um, And when I asked my dad about this picture, he says he just wanted to see if Pruitt could hold the ball through the eye hole while looking through the eye hole. So. That's a fun picture <laughs> I like to bring up to him from time to time because um, he's so he's just so nice and sweet. And you just don't see that. Part no, this looks like a scene out of The Exorcist. <laughs> yes. And I just jump in for just a quick second. I, I won't say a whole lot tonight, but I will say I'm, I'm a huge football fan. Yes. And most NFL players play. The average is probably three seasons. Yes. Uh, your dad played for 10 or 11 years. 10. He had 30 career interceptions, which is phenomenal for a defensive back. Um, just, I just want to note to the audience that he was a really good player, uh, not just somebody who played in the NFL, but a really good player who played in the NFL. Yeah, he was he was pretty amazing. I was six months old when he went to the Super Bowl in 1981, um, and that was against the Philadelphia Eagles. But um, he retired in '83, so. What happened was he and a couple of people who are LDS that are watching may know the name Todd Christensen. He was a um, big tight end, really, really phenomenal player, but he also came out of BYU. And so when my dad was traded to the Oakland Raiders, uh, he met Todd Christensen and um, they became really good friends. My mom already had me. She's pregnant with my other sister at the time and was looking for something. She said that my mom's exact words were, I wanted to show you that there was something bigger than myself as your mother so that you could just um, go through life knowing that there's a higher power. And so she went to a lot of different churches at that time. And um, Todd's wife, Kathy, took her to um, the LDS church in California. That's when they were with the Raiders. And she they ended up joining the church. My dad met the missionaries when he was home from, um, it was a Monday night football game. So he was home on that Sunday and he said he met the missionaries and he thought this will be pretty easy to remember their names. They're both elder, elder and elder. So he had no idea. He met them and um, ended up getting baptized on New Year's Eve, actually 1982, I believe it was. So um, they opened up, they opened up the church on New Year's Eve for him and my mom but they were converted when I was three. That um, really is amazing, uh, Summer. Is it okay if I call you Summer? Yeah, of course. Because your first name is Summer Rain, correct? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. But um, no, I did not know that it was Todd Christensen. Yes. That converted your dad because I thought that Paul H. Dunn was the one who claimed to have done that. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. No? Wasn't him. That was that's baseball. My dad played football, so Boom. Yes. <laughs> different sport. <laughs> <laughs> gonna be a long night guys <laughs> but but yeah so we have pictures of how what i me at three years old when my parents around the time that they converted i think that's uh picture three and four um maybe if you want to put those up but when i was three my sister was just being born that's right after um they were baptized you can see my dad with his soup bowl ring there um oh, yes yeah, yeah. The, that's the 81 Super Bowl. And then they went to the Las Vegas, Ra uh, sorry, Los Angeles Raiders. And um, that's when he retired. So, and I think there's one more picture. And that's. That is a great picture of both of you. Are you waving at the camera? That's me. Yes. I was ready. I was ready for my Mormonism live. Wow. <laughs> wow. Even from an early age. And here's <laughs> another picture of you. Are you a little bit older there? No, nope. Still Same three. Age? This was the same year. This was 1983, circa 1983. And so, um, yeah, that's that's when they converted over to Mormonism. So I grew up in the church. I knew nothing else. My mom um, grew up Catholic. My father grew up Baptist, which plays into my Mormon story. But um, as far as I knew, my life was LDS. My parents were LDS. I never knew them before that time. So um, from there, we were living in New York, Long Island area. From Long Island, we moved to, we moved a lot when I was younger. Um, funny story, we moved a lot. So my Montessori was at a Catholic Montessori and my kindergarten. Then we moved to another school for my first and second grade. Then we moved again for my third and fourth grade year. And then we moved again for my fifth and then again for my sixth. So funny story, my dad would come in and do an assembly every school I went to. So he'd come in, he had his football helmet, he had a Super Bowl ring, and he'd always come in. So he was kind of like my personal show and tell. <laughs> but I was so young that I didn't understand why I became like the most popular kid in school the next day. I said, oh, these people really like my personality. And it wasn't that. It was because, you know, Summer's dad came in with a helmet. So he did that all the way through sixth grade. And then he no longer did show and tell for me anymore. But um, we moved a lot. But it was all on the East Coast, Pennsylvania. And then um, in Pennsylvania, we stayed there um, for the rest of my life. So from sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth all the way to senior year, I was in Pennsylvania. And that was a good time. My my growing up in Mormonism was very charmed. I um, call it a bubble within a bubble because there's the bubble of Mormonism, but then my mom created a bubble within that. So we were very nuanced. Like I said, my parents were converts. So my mother's side of the family, were, they were not members. My father's side of the family were not members. So there was never an understanding of if they don't join, they will 
go to the terrestrial kingdom. It was kind of just not discussed. It was more, we have the fullness of the gospel, but everyone has their own path. Everyone has their own journey to a higher power to be a better person. So I never grew up with that. We are the only ones attitude. It was more, this is a path for us and it works for us because it makes us better people. But Mother Teresa had a path. My Aunt Teresa has a path. Everyone has a different path. And my mom's side of the family, they're Catholics, but they're also Hindu because I have East Indian. Sorry, my mom is from Trinidad and Tobago. So I have a lot of Catholicism on that side from the Portuguese. Spanish it's down side. by the Caribbean, isn't it? It's by the Caribbean. It's by Venezuela. I'm sorry. I have to laugh at this because I had to ask Summer earlier today. Okay, I'm sorry. I've got to ask. Where the heck is Trinidad? Because <laughs> I think I know where it is. I was in totally yeah. the wrong hemisphere, actually. So it's in the Caribbean. It's by Venezuela. It's a little island. It's wonderful. They have carnival in February. Go, because it's amazing there. But um, that mixture was East Indian. It's called the West Indies, but it's a lot of East Indian. So I have a lot of family that is from India and they are Hindu. And then I have a lot of family that is Catholic. So I was just raised, be a good person kind of thing and use um, wherever you are to connect with Christ and connect to a higher power. And that was really it. My father was um, definitely the spiritual leader in our home. He made sure we had family home evening. We did it on Sunday nights because Mondays he was working. So it was little things like that. On the East Coast, the closest temple was Washington, D.C. temple. So we would have to drive four and a half hours one way to get to a temple. And my dad was a temple worker. So he went every Saturday. I mean, he was he was on it when he got baptized. He was just 100 percent behind it. Still is. Um, but he was a wonderful example of the sacrifice. You know, you would get up five in the morning to read the scriptures before we went to school. My mom was a great example of how to be Christ-like and live the gospel, but not live the culture of the gospel. And the best way to explain that is, um, for example, I was a volleyball player in high school. Um, I ended up getting a scholarship to college for volleyball. I loved volleyball. And like I said, we all lived far from church. Church was 45 minutes away. Our stake center was an hour and a half away, one way. And so when I would get off volleyball practice with my shorts, normal shorts, but they were above the knee and my knee pads, I'd go straight to young women. And I remember the young women president pulling me aside one day and saying, um, if you can't change before young women, you can't come anymore. And I went home and I told my mother and she went in that Sunday and said, and I was right there and said, you do not speak to my daughter without me present, first of all. Second of all, be grateful that she's even coming. And I'm pretty sure that was the last time she ever talked to me. The, the, the young women president never spoke to me to this day. I think she denied, declined my Facebook request because she's scared of my mother. Like nobody messes with my mom. So that was my mom. She created a bubble within a bubble, if that makes sense. I was growing up in a religion 
that has a problematic history without even knowing there was a problematic history. Because my mother made sure that anybody that could burst that bubble for me and tell me that I'm lesser than, even as a woman, not even just race, but even as a woman, she made sure to check them and say, we're not doing this. Um, I was telling RFM that I was, I was always a kid that asked questions. It was my thing. And um, I remember my senior year in high school, I had a new seminary teacher. He was our former bishop. And I would ask questions all the time. I, it wasn't disrespectful. It wasn't to, um, I believed in the church. I believe in the Book of Mormon. It was Book of Mormon year. And I was so, I would study hunibly. So I would come to seminary with questions. And he did not like being questioned at all. And my mom told me years later that he'd come up to her and said, I'm not going to pass summer for seminary because she keeps asking questions. And my mom, again, said, is she being disrespectful? He said, no, just she just keeps asking questions. She says, well, I taught my children to ask questions. So I expect you to pass her. And that was it. I passed and I didn't even know he complained about me because my mom handled it. So I was very blessed to not only have um, the leadership that I had in on the East Coast, to have my father who was at home and very much about read the scriptures and all that, but blessed to have a mom who showed me what a strong woman looks like, but also to protect me from any damage and or harm that any faith can cause on a family and a child, let alone, you know, the one that we were part of or are part of. So um, that was my mother. That was my father. That's great. Summer, can I ask you a couple of questions? First off, this is more of an observation. If you don't pass seminary in your senior year, that's going to have a big impact on you're trying to get into BYU, isn't it? Yes. And that was a dream your mother had for you, correct? So it was, it was a dream my dad, dad had for me, okay. I would say, my dad. Um, that is a funny story. And I'll actually, um, if you want to put up, Maven, the, the Universe Miami pictures, that's, I think, seven and eight. I wrote them down so we wouldn't get them confused. But that is me at 16. Universe Miami with some friends. My father, when I turned 15, became a, um, not a scout, but he was a financial planner for NFL players. So he would go down to colleges and speak to players that were about to enter the NFL and just talk to them about financial things so that they were prepared. And then, um, so he, University of Miami is his alma mater. He's Hall of Fame down there. It's where he went to school. So he would go to University of Miami all the time. This was the Butch Davis area era, if anybody knows UM. So they were winning. They were an amazing team then. So he would take me with him because I am a football psycho. Um, I'm, I'm that little girl from Remember the Titans. Like I'm yelling at the players on the sidelines. So he would take me every trip. So I met Butch Davis. I met the players. Um, maybe you could even put the other one up. That was me at 16. The next one is me at 17. Um, that's me, same guys. Um, and so, oh, go back one. We're not, we're not to that Jeffrey yet. 
And I have a question for you before we get to the next one, but go ahead, please. So we would always go down and I met Butch Davis. I told him I'm in high school. I wanted to study law at the time. They had a great law program. And I said, but I want to work for the football team. He said, Summer, you come down here. I got a job for you. So I had a job set up. I was ready to go University of Miami. I had my shirts and I applied for UM. I got a scholarship. I applied for Penn State. Um, got a scholarship and then I applied for BYU. I don't even remember why I did. It was more just a throwaway school and I was accepted. And I walked in to my parents' bedroom and said, I got accepted to University of Miami. And my dad looks at me (laughs) after three years of taking me to Miami. And he says, you're not going to Miami. None of my girls are going to University of Miami. My son can go if he wants to play football, but Um, that's a party school. You're not going to Miami. And I was devastated. I I can't even describe to you how upset. So I put on my lawyer skills and thought, how can I finagle this? And I said, let's make a deal, dad. If I go to whatever school you want me to go to for two years, you'll let me go to Miami for two years. And that's how I ended up going to BYU when I graduated. But yes, Seminary was a huge part of BYU. If, if you don't have a seminary um, graduation certificate, forget about it. Um, also service, all the service that I did. Um, I have pictures uh, five and six youth conference. I'd go to do service projects for youth conference. That was for BYU. Um, but I wasn't planning on going. I just was you know, doing all the work to get in there. And I was um, young women president. I was a secretary. So all those things led to me being able to be at BYU. That's me at youth conference. I'm the far, far left there with glasses. That was a service project. But if I, um, if that seminary teacher, again, my senior year said, we're not giving it to her, then the other three years that I had with another seminary t- teacher was thrown away. It's just incredible to me doing something like that because you're asking questions that can have such a negative impact on what you would think a seminary teacher and former bishop would want you to do, which is go to BYU. Yeah. Wow. He, I I don't, and the thing is, I wish I remembered some of the questions, but they were always faith promoting. I'm, I'm just curious, why is this going on? And he just wanted me to read and move forward. And so, and I just wasn't raised that way. This is me. I'm on the right um, for Trek. And so I went on Trek in Pennsylvania. Um, one of the one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've ever had, to be honest with you. Um, I'm wondering now if it's because I didn't eat a lot. And so I was fasting in a way because we were on cornmeal. But it was a phenomenal experience. And I remember just loving it. Um, back then we had to, we did cornmeal for three days on the fourth day, they had us kill a turkey, a live turkey, the pa and the, the brother did it. They don't do that anymore, but, um, it was an amazing experience, but all of these things, my youth conference, we would go to Palmyra, which was five hours away, but all of these experiences were, um, wonderful at the time. But again, 
it was, I'm realizing as I got older that it was a unique experience within the, the Mormon um, upbringing that, again, I, I give all credit to my mom. She was able to balance that we're going to go to New Year's Eve in Brooklyn with my uncles and they're going to drink, but we don't. There was still a balance. There was never any shunning. There was never any, we don't hang out with them. They can't sit with us. That attitude wasn't there. So 98, I graduated and went to BYU. Summer, before you get to BYU, I'm so sorry. I've got no. these two questions now that have stacked up. Yes. Uh, but the most recent one is, did you get around to mentioning as much as you wanted to and as much as I wanted to hear about the spiritual experience you had on Trek? So I can I can talk about that a little bit. Trek, again, to remind everybody, I'm a convert and my parents are converts. So we don't have pioneer lineage at all. So I did not want to go. I mean, I think every kid, most kids don't want to go to camp, young women camp, young men camp, and they don't want to do track. But when I went on it, we were singing hymns. We had a only woman pull. Um, there was a lot of prayer. And I remember there was a time that they said, we're going to take a break. Everybody take their journals, find a quiet spot and write in them. And I still to this day have that entry. I still have that diary. I was only 15 and I felt the spirit so strongly um, just testifying that he was there and was real. Not necessarily anything about pioneer lineage, because again, I don't, I don't have any. So I wasn't expecting that. But I felt so strongly that no matter what I go through in life, God will always be there. And I just need to reach out to him. I felt so good. And um, I, I truly want to say that that was the day that I felt as though I knew what the spirit felt like to me. That, you know, in church, we always talk about it's a soft voice. It's this. Since that day. I can now recognize when I'm feeling the spirit and when I'm just feeling good. And it's from that 15 year old experience. That so is, it was wonderful. That's fantastic. Second question before you go on, I think you've established your bona fides as a football fan and an athlete, Yes. but you're a senior, you're in seminary, you're reading Hugh Nibley. You said, how is it that you get a hold of a book by Hugh Nibley and what on earth are you doing reading it? So I think, I think it just was more of um, who I was at the time. I didn't realize it was crazy. I had my, one of my girlfriends at church, her father was um, not a historian, but he was really into scholarly books. And I just remember going to her house and seeing it. I don't remember which one it was, but it was something like, you know, the the Book of Mormon, history of the Book of Mormon. And it, it broke down how the Book of Mormon is a historic whatever. And I picked it up and looked at it and I asked if I can borrow it. And ever after that day, when I was done, I would return it. It was like a, my own personal library and ask him for another one. So I was, I know we talked earlier RFM and you said you sound like you were very precocious. I was. I mean, I at four years old, I was asking my mom, why is Santa's handwriting the same as yours? 
So I was that kid that was always thinking and trying to get to the bottom of things and just expounding on stuff. So that was me. Um, I remember finding my first Hugh Nibley book at 16. And so it was my sophomore year in high school. And I just kept reading. Um, I had the Book of Mormon manuals, the New Testament manuals. So I didn't, I wasn't that kid that my parents had to kind of get on about, are you studying? Are you, I was always had books. Um, so yeah. Amazing. Okay. Now you're ready to make the jump to BYU where you always wanted to go. Yeah. Ready to make the jump. Um, let me back up just a little bit because the next spiritual experience was at BYU, but I want to preface it a little bit. So like I said, I moved around a lot. I made friends, but then I would leave. There were no cell phones. We're not going to handwrite letters in second grade. In seventh grade was when we moved to Pennsylvania and I became um, best friends with this girl, Sarah Novella. My last name was Owens. And so we were in the same homeroom. We were just peanut butter jelly seventh grade all the way to 11th grade very very close she was the only person my mom would let me go to her house she'd come to my house there was some dysfunction at her home but um when i was my senior year my parents moved again um within pennsylvania but to another home and it was 45 minutes away from my previous house so I lost touch with Sarah, but I remember coming home from BYU um, for Thanksgiving, November, and I had this strong impression, strong impression to reach out to Sarah and ask her if she wanted to hang out for Christmas. Um, she'd always come over for holidays and like be with us for holidays. So I thought, I haven't seen her in a year. Let me reach out to her. And I got so busy that I did not reach out to her at all. So I was home for a week. I went back to BYU and um, my sister called me two days after I came home, came back to BYU and she had um, killed herself. Um, and that was very hard for me um, because there was a lot of blame for not listening to the Holy Ghost, right? I felt this impression to reach out to her. I didn't. And I just remember being very grateful to be at BYU because there was a um, there's just an understanding of there's a plan, you know, there's life after death, so everything will be okay. And I don't know if I would have had that stability or base at a secular school. So I, at that time, was very grateful. Um, I don't know if they still do this, but at the time they had the boys um, preparing for missions. And so they would have them go as pairs and be home teachers. So I had two guys that would always check on me, make sure I was okay about the Sarah thing. Um, and so I was really grateful for that. And that was my, that was really my experience at BYU really um, summed up. I remember when it was not a bad experience. I was only there for four months. I ended up going back home um, that January and then I transferred to Syracuse. But um, I felt the spirit again and I felt the comforter, which we're told we'll feel. And 
it was just very difficult. She was 18. I was 18. There were so many questions and the gospel and my home teachers, the people at BYU had answers and I needed that at that time. So I was just so grateful to this day for being there at that time. Yeah, and historically, I think the LDS Church's theology has not been as hard on people who take their lives as other religions, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. And um, I didn't know that at the time. I, I truly didn't know where the stance was. I just felt so much love from everybody. And again, it could have been the same at a different school, but I truly believe that everything happens for a reason. There's a time and a place. And I needed to be there during that time to get through it. Um, so anyway, I ended up coming back home. In and January. so, yes, and I was just going to say, I was going to remark on something, which is that you had made a commitment, I believe, yeah. to go to BYU for two years and then yeah. go to Miami for the last two years. Well, I think what you just said was you went to BYU for one semester and then you transferred to Syracuse. How did yeah. that happen? Um, my dad has a short memory and he I'm the oldest of six kids. <laughs> and you take so. advantage of it. <laughs> So by then he had another kid that was going to college. He had a kid that was entering high school. So I think he forgot that it was two years. But thankfully for me, he um, said that it was okay. I actually um, applied for Southern Virginia College. Um, funny enough, it, it wasn't. You it mean was the Southern Virginia University, the, the Mormon re yes, affiliated college? In Virginia. SVU, yeah. Yes, but it was SVC at the time. It wasn't a university yet. It wasn't a university yet. So again, I was looking to get into law and I applied. I got a, a volleyball scholarship to go there and a academic scholarship. My mom brought me down. She had me set up. And the day before school started, we found out that it wasn't accredited um, yet. And they were saying that um, if I, you know, if I graduate from there, I can go to a law school within Virginia, but they can't guarantee that I can go outside of Virginia. And so my mom came back down and helped me unpack, pack up my stuff again. And I went back home. So I, I actually forgot about my, my one week stint at SVC, but now it's SVU. As startling as that is, I'm glad you found out then at least. Yes. Yes. But I had come early for volleyball. So I was there doing practice and with the team. And then um, they're like, oh, by the way, this we're not accredited yet. So um, I think my dad probably thought she gave it a good college try with BYU and then SVC. So I'll let her go wherever she wants to go now. Um, by that time, I decided to change majors to communication. Um, I'd mentioned to you, RFM, I was looking to do law, but the Ken Star report came out at that time and I was just watching on TV and I was just getting so frustrated. People talking about what is, is, and I said, I can't do this. I, I couldn't do that. So I thought, what do I love? Summer, could you put a little more flesh on those bones? <laughs> Ken Starr, uh, attorney general, something, Bill Clinton, something, something. Something about that. So Kenneth Star report was the report that came out that I believe was um, the what led to Bill Clinton being impeached. He was a special prosecutor, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. He was a special prosecutor. And his name was Kenneth Starr. He came out the Star report. 
And at the time, it was as big to me in that era as the O.J. Simpson trial. I just remember it being on TV all the time. And I love law. Um, I love to argue, still do. And there we go, Coco B. Coco B just said the blue dress. See, I don't need to give more flesh to this story. Not everybody in the audience is as intelligent and well-informed as Coco B. <laughs> I just think you want me to tell this story. But no, I was just wondering what it was that uh, when, made it so um, distasteful to you, this, this spectacle. You know what it was? I was used to the Judge Judy's, the People's Court, Perry Mason, the um, let's, I mean, I even loved Matlock at that time. It was this, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. We put it together and we're done. To sit and watch it be drawn out on things so minuscule that I knew didn't matter, right? It was um, politically motivated, spoiler alert. Um, so it, it didn't have the meat that law has. And that just really frustrated me. Like I said, you know, them arguing about what is, is the definition of is, is, I just, I just didn't have, I, I don't suffer fools, right? So I just couldn't, I was like, I can't do this. So I decided to think about what I love and <laughs> nice Dan. Um, and I love football, love football. Like I said, that is, that is it. So I decided what could I worked backwards and said, what could I do in the NFL? They're not going to let me be a coach. Um, I can own it, but I don't have the money. What can I do? And I thought PR, I'm going to go into PR. So I applied to Syracuse new house. I was accepted and went into communications just to get a job in the NFL. That was my sole purpose. Um, it was freezing up there, but I had a great time. It was a great school. And from there, I actually got um, an internship to the Raiders. Um, but what I learned, I'm going to say, I'm just going to give a quick story about Syracuse because I, I came from BYU. That was my college experience, right? And BYU, they the credits that you have to take there is uh, one of the classes is religion. So my first year, I took Book of Mormon, right? So I go from there to Syracuse where their prerequisite course is African-American studies. So it was a very different atmosphere. Um, I remember being so grateful to be there because I'm the type that wants to test my own metal, test my own character. And I remember feeling like this is going to show me who I am, right? If my friends are drinking, I don't want to drink. If they're doing drugs and I don't want to do drugs, that shows who I am, right? Um, whereas at BYU, it was more of an extension of home. You know, there was a curfew. Um, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was there, you had a card. They had to swipe after, I think, 11 or midnight. And that card showed what time you came in. And the bishop had a record of that. So if you came in a little bit late too many times, you got a random call from the bishop to come in. So I personally did not, um, I didn't realize at the time that I didn't like it, but when I went to Syracuse, the freedom of being able to say no, because I had those choices and the freedom to have that agency felt like home because home, we were on the East Coast, 
we were, I was one of four members in my high school and my high school had 800 kids. So every day you chose what you wanted to do. You chose who you wanted to be around. So I loved going to Syracuse for that. Um, I will say I came from a very conservative background. My father um, and I talked politics all the time growing up. And um, I was very black and white coming out of high school where it's either wrong or right. Um, I was empathetic to other people, but I hadn't experienced the world yet to understand what other lives could be like. So I remember, and, and this is gonna lead to another story. I was um, I was seven, 16 and I had just come home from school, social studies, and we were talking about history. And we talked about the KKK. Now I know about the Ku Klux Klan because my father grew up in Florida in the segregated South. It was a daily thing for him. And he didn't even meet the first white person ever until his junior year in high school. That's how segregated his community was. So um, I, I've heard stories from him. I've heard stories from my grandfather. And so I didn't have to learn about it, but hearing about it in school, I remember coming home and saying to my dad, why does the KKK still exist? Why didn't the government shut them down in the 60s, in the 70s? They did horrific things. They are a hate group. And my father saying to me, Summer, everyone has a right to their hate. And he says, we may not agree with it, but constitutionally, they have a right to how they believe. And we don't want those rights trampled or whatever. So I went to Syracuse, a very liberal college with that kind of naive thought that everyone has the same rights. This is equal opportunity. Um, and then I'm in African-American studies class and my professor tells the class how the Black Panther Party was created and that the FBI had infiltrated the Black Panther Party and split them up. And I could not understand that. I could not wrap my head around why the Black Panther Party was dismantled, but the KKK has a right to exist. So I remember going home uh, to my apartment at Syracuse and I was upset. I, I remember I was crying. It didn't make sense to me because I had this picture of America, I have this picture of everyone has a right, right? But now I'm hearing about this one group. So I called my grandfather, who I always called when I had tough issues to discuss. He's in Florida. And I said, granddaddy, I need you to talk to me about the Black Panther Party. Like who were they? What type of organization was it? Why would the government dismantle them, but not other groups? And he said, some, all I can say is everything had a purpose at that time. He said, Malcolm X was there for Martin Luther King. And he says, I'm going to tell you the Black Panther Party was necessary then. He said, when I've never told anyone this story some, but when I was driving in the back roads of Alabama with your grandmother, it was getting dark and a car pulled up behind us 
and it was a car full of the Ku Klux Klan. He said, I pulled over. I didn't know what was going to happen. And a car pulled up behind them, and it was the Black Panther Party. So you've got the KKK and all their white guard. And then behind them, you had the Black Panther Party and all of their guard. He said he never got out of the car. He doesn't know what happened. He just got back on the road and took off. He said, so some people will always have a reason for why they think what they think, but always remember that there's always another side of the story because of people's different experiences. And people can say whatever they want about whatever organization, but I know if it wasn't for this organization that day, I would not be alive. And that was so powerful to me as a 19 year old to hear someone that I respect say, make sure you question. Don't just take that one stance and say, black or white, this is the way it is. Because people are complex, life is complex. And the more hard of a stance you take, the more life is going to show you that that's not the stance to take. So um, when I talked to him about that, before he got the phone with me, he said, I know that you're going to hear a lot of things that are upsetting to you, but remember the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth on them. And that's Ida B. Wells, um, a quote. She's an amazing African-American black um, person. If you guys ever want the audience ever wants to look her up, but that was the day that I recognized that I'm going to hear some hard truths, but the only way to right wrongs is to be strong and courageous enough to right those wrongs. So that was my, that was the biggest thing that I learned at Syracuse was hearing the other side and understanding that there is another side. Um, so from Syracuse. Can I mention I something here? Uh, just, uh, I hadn't thought of this before when you were telling me the story, but how interesting that, um, uh, the Black Panthers and Mormonism, Eldridge Cleaver. Yes. Ends up joining, I mean, a prominent, famous member of the Black Panthers did some prison time, I believe, ended up joining the LDS Church in 1983. Yes. When my dad joined. Coincidence, right? Yes. My dad is not him. He's not my dad. Right. I've never seen them in the same room, though. But <laughs> um, but yes, it's, it's very coincidental. Um especially given the history, but yeah. So anyway, I go from there to the Oakland Raiders and I'm now working in public relations for the Oakland Raiders. Um, it was completely different than what I thought it was going to be. Um, that is where my dad went to school. I mean, sorry, that's where he played his remainder years. Once a Raider, always a Raider. So when I got there, everybody, I mean, it was, it was like, family reunion, really. Um, guys that I've not seen since I was in diapers were still working there. They still lived there. Cliff Branch, Lester Hayes. Um, it, it was it was amazing to just kind of be in this environment. And the environment is just so welcoming. And Al Davis was still alive. So this is still Al Davis's team. Um, but it wasn't public relations was more being a fixer 
for the Raiders then, not saying that's how it is now, but back then my job was to find out what the players were doing before the media found out. And that was, it was nonstop 24 hours, two o'clock in the morning calls. Um, I was the consigliere for the Raiders and I ended up deciding to write for the website. And so they moved me to community relations, which funny enough, the Oakland Raiders didn't have a community relations department at the time, but I kind of started doing that. So Charles Woodson, I would take him to a hospital and then I would write about it and put it on the website. And I realized I loved community relations. So I was there for a year. That was 2001. So Jerry Rice was there, Tim, Tim Brown, um, Charles Woodson, um, I'm trying to think who else, Rich Gannon was the quarterback. So it was great era. So I go from there and I go back home to the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, I met with their community relations person. It was just one person. And she said, great, I want you to start working. So I went right from Al Davis's Oakland Raiders to Andy Reid's Philadelphia Eagles, because Coach Reed was at the Eagles when I went there. So um, it was it was a completely different environment. Um, I, I've mentioned this to other people, but I don't get starstruck, but I've gotten starstruck twice in my whole life. And once was at the Raiders when I met Al Davis. He came in off the field and he said, oh, I heard your Burgess owns his daughter and I wanted him out of University of Miami. He ran this many footballs and this many interceptions. He knew my dad's stats from UM. And this guy was in his 80s. Um, he's like, I was so mad when the Jets picked him up. I wanted him, but I was glad when we got him in the trade. And I was just like, this is Al Davis, right? Um, so I go from there to Coach Reed, who is all about character over anything. Um, Reno Mahe was there, who I'm still friends with. Um, Chad Lewis was there. So we had a lot of LDS players there. And I remember a lot of those players through Reno. Reno was married, but a lot of those guys would say, come to church with us, you know, go to singles ward. So they're kind of like proselyting for real, for real in the locker room. Not like what Todd Christensen was doing, which was just being an example. They were in between placing here's a book of mormon so um it was amazing the eagles i loved that job i was there for three seasons that again for football fans do staley was there brian westbrook brian dawkins um donovan mcnab when i left terrell owens was there this picture is me um on the field before a game with jeffrey laurie um it looks like i'm telling him how to run his team but that's not what was happening um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. I, it was my dream job. I loved it. I would go there at five in the morning to the Novacare center, and then I would help the cheerleaders at 6 PM. I was there all the time. So here comes another spiritual experience for me because I'm in Philadelphia. I actually am living at home and I love my job but I had one more credit left at Syracuse. So when I went to the Oakland Raiders, I was doing an internship. And for some reason, the internship didn't translate the credits. So 
while I was at the Eagles, I'm contacting Syracuse and they're saying, oh no, you're short. We didn't accept the Raiders credits. So I'm like, I don't care. I want to stay with the Eagles. And the people that were in charge of that department didn't want me to stay. So they're saying, you need to go back to school. And I said, I only have one more credit. I can do it online, but they were whatever. I remember going home and praying. I fasted. I prayed. I knew that job was my job. And what's interesting is, is my position was an assistant. So then I created this whole position in the community relations department, a a salary, all of that. And I went to Joe Banner, who was the financial guy for the the team. And they um, said, this looks great. The person that was in charge of the department took my papers and said, I want to create this position, but I don't want summer in that position. So I was devastated. I'm praying, I'm fasting. I felt so strongly that this job was mine. And it wasn't, right? And I remember being so confused because I was praying. And then I remember looking back and thinking, well, I didn't really pray thy will be done. I prayed, I want this job. So give it to me, please. And I won't eat until you give it to me kind of thing. Um, And so... Anyway, I continued to pray and I had a strong impression to be in the NFL, maybe not with the Eagles. So I went and I interviewed for the Indianapolis Colts and the Cleveland Browns, Bill. Um, When I was there, when I interviewed the Cleveland Browns, Kellen Winslow Jr. was there. So I went there and the Colts were, I was supposed to go to Indianapolis. And while I was waiting for the Colts to call me back, my dad found out that Continental Airlines was hiring and asked have I ever thought about being a flight attendant? And I just applied randomly. Um, And then I got a call back. I went to flight attendant training. It was very rigorous. I'm very competitive. I didn't want to lose and I didn't want them to cut me. So I ended up becoming a flight attendant. And then that became my dream job for seven years. And your mom was a flight attendant before you, right? My mother was a flight attendant. She was with Eastern. And she and my father actually met on an airplane. My dad was on a charter flight with the New York Jets. My mom was quick called to the flight and um, they met on the airplane. And so he was thrilled. I mean, he was so excited that um, I left the NFL. I think he's probably the only father that was happy I left a real, you know, a real PR, CR career to become a flight attendant, which you only need a high school diploma. I have all these law, I'm not law, sorry, I have all these student loans. Um, but he was so proud. He's like, oh, my daughter's now a flight attendant like her mom. So I did that for seven years and I was international. So I what traveled seven, everywhere. What seven years are those? Just to try and keep uh, what years? up to date. Yes. So that was 2006 to, two, sorry, 2004 to 2011. And and this, uh, the picture here, that was before. That was before, that was 2003. This is when, strangely on the field, you were able to score an interview with Jeffrey Epstein. Is that right? <laughs> Wrong Jeffrey. That's Jeffrey Lurie. He's got a definitely Jeffrey Epstein profile. That's all I'm saying. No, no. Okay, somebody else. 
<laughs> you mentioned the the Cleveland Browns summer. You you mentioned Butch Davis, who coached the Cleveland Browns, ended yeah. up having a nervous breakdown in the, at the halftime against the Cincinnati Bengals and essentially quit the team immediately following that. You mentioned yeah. Joe Banner, who was up in the front office of the Cleveland Browns and screwed our team up so bad. You, you <laughs> mentioned uh, the, the beginning player with the person getting the face mask was Greg Pruitt. Uh, running back for the Browns in the late 70s, early 80s. And then you had, uh, there was one other Cleveland Brown you mentioned too, I thought. He's still looking Helen over his Winslow. shoulder wherever he goes. Helen Winslow Jr. Helen Winslow Jr., who who ended up after his NFL career, got went to prison because he was, um, and I'm going to say it, the light version of the word. He was sexually assaulting senior citizen women, uh, like women in their 80s and 90s. Um their home. So every one of these characters that you've said, I'm in my head going like, oh, oh, like, oh, man, oh, horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's, and what's interesting is I just feel like it was all full circle because I'm at the Browns. Kellen Winslow Jr. is there. And my dad won his wild, wild card playoff game against Kellen Winslow Sr. Yeah. And Hall so of Fame tight end. Funny yeah. to, kind of be there and be like, nah, 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 my dad has a Super Bowl ring. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I had no, I, I mean, I'll just say, Kellen Winslow Jr., that's a really sad story because he he had a great trajectory. Kind of reminds me of Maurice Clement a little bit, Ohio State, but it's just, it's just sad when you see all this potential and they just kind of go off kilter. But, um, Yes, a lot of Browns ref all roads end with the Cleveland Browns. I think yeah, Jeffrey well, Epstein played for them for a, a couple of seasons. It, it but... wouldn't surprise me because <laughs> yes, Browns. That's terrible. Uh, Summer, Summer. By the way, is this a good segue? I don't mean to get you out of sequence with your outline, but is this a good time to to mention if you want to uh, the floodlit story about the that guy who was convicted. We can mention that. Absolutely. So I was going to mention that a little bit later, but um, growing. So I'll mention that a little later because I okay. want to kind of, it ties into my journey now. All right. Um, so RFN, just be patient, please. I'm the soul of patience. <laughs> so um, anyway, I become a flight attendant. I am actually not active. And I want to just say this too. Um, being LDS on the East coast, I never heard the term Jack Mormon. That wasn't a term that we knew it was either you were active or inactive. And my father always instilled in us that, um, we carry his name. You make sure that you're a good representation of yourself. And so it was always, if you're not active, you just make sure that people know my parents or my family is Mormon, but I'm not active. Just so anything I'm doing, you don't think that's what LDS members do. Um, it was kind of understood that way. There was no Jack Mormon because when you're one of four, either you're LDS or you're not. That's just the way it is. So during my Raiders time, I was with a, um, a family member living out there in California. I was not active because she didn't go to church. Then when I came back to the Eagles, I'm back home. So I'm going to church and, and I'm active all over again. I started going to the singles ward in uh, the in Philadelphia. 
when I became a flight attendant, I was inactive again. And my roommate, I was, uh, we ended up getting a two bedroom with four of us flight attendants in Jersey. One of my roommates, her family was LDS and she was from Texas. We're still really close. So she would, we would talk about Mormon things, but um, neither one of us were active and it was just fine, right? We were living our best lives. We were just flying and just had a great time. Um, towards the end of, let me think, 2009, 2009, I had this epiphany and just said, um, I'm just ready to get back to church. I always prayed. I always connected, but I wasn't going to church. And so I decided to start going to church, but because I was so junior, I had to, uh, I always worked on Sundays. I always flew on Sundays. So I started flying Saturday night to Sunday morning, and then I would catch a cab wherever I was and go to the singles ward in that country. So I went to Belfast singles ward. I went to London Britannia ward, which is the singles ward there and just loved it. I loved it. And I remember saying to my mom, I love that. I can be away from home, but the gospel is the same. Everything is the same. I'm meeting different people, different accents. I went to uh, the one in Oslo, Norway, but everything was the same. So it still felt like home. So I come back and I'm, I, I decide to start going to um, church at home. And my best friend at the time, he was also a flight attendant. He told me about this ward in Jersey. Um, I went to the ward. I loved the ward. It was a really nice ward. And I decided to go to the bishop and talk to him about everything that was going on when I was inactive, just to have like a clean slate. Um, to rewind a little bit, right after I left the Eagles, right before I became a flight attendant, um, there was a friend of mine who played for the Eagles and he was traded to another team. We were really close friends when he played for the Eagles. Um, he was traded. He was coming back into town to play the Eagles and was like, Summer, I'm in town. Let's hang out. So my girlfriend and I went down to Philadelphia. We got a, a hotel room where they were staying. This team was staying. And we hung out. And my girlfriend left the room, went somewhere else. I was hanging out in the room. And my girlfriend had given the key to my friend. He comes in the room. I wasn't expecting him. And he tries to sexually assault me. Um, I remember I, I'm when it's fight or flight, I'm fight. That that's just my thing. So I hurt him pretty badly. Um, and he rolled over and left, right? So that happened. Nothing happened, but it was a really traumatic experience. And um, I remember even talking to him later and him laughing about it, but I never reported it. Nothing like that. Fast forward. It is now 2009. I'm with this bishop and I'm telling him, you know, I, this is what's been going on while I'm inactive. Nothing crazy. Um, but I'm talking to him and I tell him this story. I said, you know, this player, good friend of mine, he tried to sexually assault me. I fought him. And the bishop says, we're going to have to have you go through disciplinary counsel. 
And I didn't really know what he meant. I honestly, I thought it was just, let's talk to some more people about it. And and then I'll have you like, just let's just talk about it. I didn't even think I was going to be reprimanded, but I asked him why. And he said, well, I think it's important to talk about what you may have done to lead up to those circumstances. Um, and I was, I, I trusted him. So I was like, okay, whatever, whatever we need to do. Um, cause I want to, you know, I want to be able to come back to church and start over. So I end up going back to flying. I'm still flying this whole time, but I end up not being able to go back to church because it's Sunday and I'm in another country. I'm flying with another friend of mine and he hasn't gone to church in a while. He was LDS too. And um, he tells me some, you've got to go check out this other ward closer to Newark, more diversity. His exact words were, they are the salt of the earth, right? It. So I go there and I love this ward. The di- there's a lot of diversity, but they were people who were trying, right? There were no pretenses. They were the ones that raised their hand in Relief Society and will spill everything because they just connect with everyone there. There's no, I have a perfect life. So I meet with that bishop and I tell him everything I told the other bishop. And I say, just so you know, I did meet with another bishop and he said, I I might have to go through something like a disciplinary council. And he looks at me and says, I have no idea why he would want you to go through a disciplinary council. He said, Summer, I can tell you've been through a lot and there's no way I'm going to put you through anymore. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, I am proud of you for even recanting the story, but you've been through enough. You, Anything that you've done, you are forgiven. And I just want you to know you don't have to do anything else. And I start bawling without even realizing that this was the first person since it happened years before who was in essence saying it wasn't your fault, right? And I had subconsciously in my mind um, as a woman thought, what could I have done differently? What did I do? There was nothing I did. But still in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, I locked the door. He had a key, but maybe if I dead bolted it or whatever. And to speak to that first bishop, which honestly, I know he was doing what he thought was best. Um, But for him to kind of reinforce that and say, you need to talk to someone because there may be things that you had done to bring this upon yourself. I did not realize that load until that bishop, that sweet bishop that said, you've been through enough. We're not going to do this. Can, can I just jump in for just a second here? Cause last week we covered yeah. this very topic. Uh, we played the audio here of Richard G Scott. And he says at some point in time, however, the Lord may prompt a victim to recognize a degree of responsibility for the abuse. Your priesthood leader will help assess responsibility so that if needed, it can be addressed. This was the 1992 general conference. Do you know roughly what year this this happened in? This this happened in 2009 was yeah. when I spoke to this bishop. So it was, obviously they still had that mentality. 
Um, and to be completely honest, I think because of the ward I'd gone to, the second ward, there were some real issues there. Like real life, let's help you through what you're going through. That I think the second bishop was like, this is ridiculous. What, what you know, I have heavy stuff happening here that I'm helping people go through, substance abuse, things like that. Why would this bishop talk about disciplinary counsel when it's obviously not your fault? Um, I, I, I know for a fact that he was, the first bishop was a carryover from this Richard G. Scott mm -hmm. mindset. Um, yeah. And it's, it's sad because I don't know how many other people have gone through that, right? Where they've gone to the bishop and said, I want a, a clean slate. And because um, people want to assume that they did something wrong because of what they were wearing, because of how they were acting, whatever, um, they still hold that load. Because like I said, I'm very um, cognizant of what I go through internally. I had no idea I was carrying that until a bishop said, stop carrying that. It, had, it was not your fault. Um, so I just, I shot out to that Bishop. He was amazing. And I truly believe he would be the epitome of what um, the mantle looks like because he was just so loving, so Christ-like, no judgment. Um, so yeah, yeah. And in that way, you got to find out that, oh, I was just going to observe that. And that way you found out that the church is not actually the same wherever you go. Exactly. Exactly. It the, the teaching the teaching goes back. I mean, it was the 1979 Gospel Principles book that we showed that President yes. Kimball's teachings of this, along with other folks like Heber J. Grant, made its way into the Gospel Principles book, the, the, the lessons that were taught to the investigators, right, or the new members for the first year. Yeah. And, and then we went over a letter, and it was sort of partially disavowed, kind of, and then Richard G. Scott comes along, and he sort of forgets about the letter somehow and uh, ends up reiterating it. And... We, we have that conversation last week. I just find it interesting. You come on this week and essentially say, this is what happens when lay leaders who work as an accountant, plumber, electrician, carpet salesman, Monday through Friday, and on Sunday they show up at church, they think they talk to God, they take what the leaders say from the stand and the pulpit in the manuals, and then they go out and carry those teachings forward and you end up essentially getting victimized twice in a way by being told it's your fault by the bishop, the prior bishop. Well, yeah. And that's, that is honestly when I realized that um, I'd kind of seen it before. Um, and, and I'll talk about that now, the floodlit guy. I'd seen it before, but that was the first time I saw that there's discrepancies in the leaders. And it's kind of a Russian roulette on who you get. Because the first bishop to say disciplinary counsel, that is big, as you know, Bill. That's as a former bishop, when you say disciplinary counsel, that's not, you know, let's have you not take the sacrament a couple of times. So to go from that to you have nothing to repent of, Summer, you've been through enough, is such a spectrum that I realized then that I had been. Um, subjugating myself to the whatever authority was in my ward without thinking twice about what 
um, I was saying or doing. I just follow, and, and that's what we're taught to do, right? They're the priesthood holders. They're the one with the mantle. He knows better than me. But when I went to that other bishop, I was like, man, this is so much nicer. This is awesome. And so it was, it was a completely, it was a 180. And honestly, I don't know what would have happened if I'd stayed in that first ward and had been disciplined, right? And, and had been gone through that council. Um, to go back to what we were talking about with Floodlit, when I was um, 16, 15, 16 years old, this was um, someone who was in our ward. He um, was, and I'm trying to remember the, the perversion files. I know that's not the technical name, but of the Boy Scouts. He was in those, but our bishop felt as though he was okay to be part of our Boy Scouts troop. Summer, can I back up just a second? Yes. Because what you're saying, I think, is that the Boy Scouts have a list of Sorry. people. That's okay. Who have been affiliated with the Boy Scouts or tried to be. They did a background check or they acted out badly and they get put down on this list saying you cannot have anything to do with the Boy Scouts ever again. Yes. And this guy, Vance Heim, was on that list for the Boy Scouts. Yes. He and was yet. Going. Yes. And yet. And there you were going. And the and just just for some background, the reason why the Boy Scouts got into so much trouble with the lawsuits was because it was upon discovery of one of the cases they found out that there were these files. And these files were kind of, we have these files, but we're not going to publicize them so people can move from hmm. ward to ward because uh, the LDS church was completely in bed with the Boy Scouts of America at the time when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. That was, I mean, the boys had Boy Scouts. Um, so they could go from ward to ward and there were these files. And unless you requested or unless something you'd find out, well, somehow they found out that Hein was on these, in these files. And unfortunately the bishop felt, you know, he was a good guy um, possibly from what I understand, it wasn't any type of abuse, but there was a red flag. And so, um, the Bishop prayed about it and asked the, um, higher ups in the church to allow Hein to come in and be, there it is, and be part of it. And so through that, through divine, whatever, he allowed Hein to be around these children. And these boys were my age and younger. There was one who came out um, explicitly, and that is the reason why it stopped. And you can see his name is Novak. He is so brave, so brave um, to come out and speak about it. And then from what I understand later on, he, he went through a lawsuit, um, finding out that there were files and things like that. But... I bring this up to say this was the beginning of me questioning um, leadership in the sense of how is it that you can be a bishop and miss this or not feel this or not discern this. So um, when this, this happened, this is in your ward and these are your friends who are being victimized. Absolutely. Yes. And this bishop sounds like he didn't just make a bad call. He went out of his way to do the wrong thing. Absolutely. Yeah. 
it was, it, it was, it, it's bad. And so, um, but again, I think, and this is just kind of jumping ahead a little bit at the time we, it was so isolated that we were thinking it just happened here and he's just a bad guy, right? Jumping ahead. When I started hearing about Boy Scouts through Mormon stories, through Mormonism live, that's when I really got upset because I realized this was, this still is rampant. And unfortunately we're so isolated that we think it's just happening in my ward. Um, I, I'm just the, the unlucky one that had this predator in my ward. Then you hear it's everywhere. And that was 25 years ago. Is that right? Yeah. 25 years ago. And uh, that was, yeah, it was the nineties. It was, um, it was a tough one. And, you know, his, his wife and children went through a really hard time as well because, you know, he was a very bad person. Hi, Maven. I love seeing your Hi. face. It means you can have something good to say. Yeah, I just wanted to shout out Floodlit. Um, and I just put their link in the chat as well. Um, this is where you can go to learn about more cases and, uh, and you know, help support them and their work. It's just, it's a couple and a lot of volunteers that are trying to pull, put this database together of, <coughs> excuse me, LDS abusers. So if you're able to donate to the cause, if you're able to donate time, they do a lot of fact checking and double checking their stories so that, um, you know, they can be as, as sh you know, shore everything up as much as possible. Um, so I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Floodlit. Maven, will you keep that up for a second? Will you click that more button yeah. next to positions? So um, I, this where? Is hand in hand, by the way, because this is really strike. Um, I don't know why, but this uh, is really hitting me hard there. Yeah, right there. Click that. Okay, so in the LDS Church, these are the positions. These were the pe the callings people held when serious allegations slash uh, criminal prosecutions class slash convictions occurred with people who committed sexual assault. Their yeah. stake presidents. It said eleven stake presidents. It's eighty two bishop, eighty three bishops, and then you juxtapose that. I'm going to throw something else up here on the screen that I had up a moment ago. You have Henry B. Eyring, who says that the Lord leads his church. And his quote is, for instance, it takes faith to believe the resurrected Lord is watching <laughs> the daily details of his kingdom. It takes faith to believe he calls imperfect people into positions of trust. It takes faith to believe that he knows the people he calls perfectly, but both their capacities and their potential, and so makes no mistakes in his calls when you teach, because the, the leaders of the church know this, when on one hand you teach, members trust us. Yeah. We're as honest as we know how to be, and the Lord doesn't make any mistakes in his calls. And then on the other end of it, leaders are put in positions and members subject themselves to unsafe spaces where they're abused because they believed Elder Iring, because they believe the things the leaders say, and the leaders know it, and they leave such a space where abuse can occur. The church just has to do better. You you really have to start admitting that these calls are just dumb luck, really. I call a guy. We think he's going to be good at something. He ends up abusing somebody. We never knew that was going to happen. But don't ever, don't ever believe that any of these guys, that God doesn't make any mistakes. God makes a whole host of mistakes 
in the callings he makes, um, maybe all the way to the top. And on top of that, we're going to fight and kick against background checks because our spirit of discernment is so good that we don't need them. No, so good that floodlight there shows all the callings and we have 83 bishops who have committed some sort of sexual malfeasance, right? And something that... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, maybe. Yes, I just wanted to add this too. If you know of a story that isn't in here, if there's anyone that you know check floodlit and see if that story is there in the database and if not you can submit the information or even just email them and let them know and they'll they'll have people um you know hunt down sources as much as possible of course everything you can submit and um and also your own story um they accept all stories and while they do try to document with court documents and news reports as much as possible that's not required and they'll still even anonymously anonymously uh, give you space to share your story so if it's something um that that never got anywhere never had any kind of public record um you can you can share your story there so i just wanted to say you could do that as well too and they also have some resources um for victims of uh, of abuse and um let me see if i can go and find that real quick yeah so this is on the main page yeah they have resources for abuse survivors sorry what was that bill notice that comment by the way uh on the screen right now Mm. of the callings listed missionary and bishop were the highest there's there's the same number of bishops in award as there are relief society presidents there's the same number of bishops in award as there are young men's presidents it's the people that the church tells you to trust the most that are most likely to commit significant abuse against another human being. Well, I was going to say the one thing that the Boy Scouts of America um, whole scandal taught everybody was secrecy leads to um, a continuing, right? And it was like letting the fox into the hen house a lot of times because a lot of these guys would abuse kids and then literally just move to a different state and it's not tracking them. And that's what I see with this, with the bishops, you know, you, you have someone in a, a big a position and they know, they know I might not be allowed to be near a school or near a playground, but I can be the primary um, counselor. You know, I can have kids behind closed doors here and that's what's scary. And we do need to do better because it's it. it once you know, um, you got to change it. It, it, it. There's no excuse at this point. I think that was one of the roughest things about the, the marathon that I did that summer helped so much for that. So if any of you missed that, um, I wasn't as prepared for that as I would have liked to have been. And uh, Summer, you saved me during that. I, I stayed up the majority of that 36 hours and Summer was there for me for most of it, doing background stuff like I do for Mormonism Live. I, I, it just would not have gone the way that it did without you. But um, so thank you for that. And then, yeah, I get just the, the stories that we went through were really heartbreaking, I think. Because besides all the stuff that I did, just were so many that had so many victims because pre- and they knew about previous ones. It just hurts to see that people like keeping this secret and protecting abusers, just how much that allowed them to continue to abuse 
individuals for decades and sometimes add you know dozens and dozens of, of victims on, on top of that very first one that if if the right things had been done you know hundreds thousands of children could have been spared uh what happened to them if people were just willing to tell and not and not keep putting that actually no i think i don't know if that was more frustrating the the number of times that these people kept getting put into leadership positions where they had access to vulnerable uh, children and people that was really i think the most maddening to me in spite of accusations and reports it was really horrible yeah and i just want to say maven you're amazing and you're a rock star for doing that um because it was all you you said i want to do this floodlit and um it it was hard it was hard we read each story from beginning to mm -hmm. end and it was three days of stories. And like you're saying, the hardest part- and it was, was over 600. Yeah, the hardest part was not just the stories, but the fact that it there were so many times that you heard in the stories, it could have been stopped and it continued because you know the focus was on the predator and not the victim. And that's hard. I remember, yeah, I remember one was like, there was a comment that someone said, well, we need to find, we need to make sure that this is, you know, we need to find out whether this is like something like a, a real abuse kind of situation where this, this guy is a danger to others, or if he was just, you know, like having a midlife crisis. Yeah. Like you do, like, like child assault is, an, you know, a midlife crisis is an okay explanation for a child assault. And, and that's not a dangerous person. Yeah. It was, it was truly maddening. Yeah. Anyway, we can go. I, I just wanted to yeah. like shout out Floodlet. We will come come back to yes. your story. I mean, I Thank had a midlife so crisis. I didn't go off assaulting children. Now I'm experiencing yeah. an end of life crisis. Right. Brush up on your Shakespeare. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so anyway, that was the second bishop. And because of him and because of his love, I decided... Um, I was going to take out my uh, temple endowment, and I didn't even know what that meant. Literally had no idea. I just wanted to show Heavenly Father that I was completely committed to him. And so um, this bishop had me meet with uh, senior missionaries. Um, they were so cute and talk about the take the discussions for uh, the endowments. I had no idea what it was. Um, but I felt very strongly that I should at least go through that. So I was meeting with them. And at this time, I was, like I said, going to um, singles wards in other countries at home. I was home for one Sunday and I said, you know what? I'm going to try out the singles ward in New York City. Never been to it. Let me go check it out. And I was on call for Beijing. So I couldn't go far. So I end up going up to the, um, taking the train to New York City. And long story short, I met my husband at the singles ward. Um, he was an ER resident and had just moved to that area. So he had gone, I think there's two single wards in New York City. And he, that was his first day at that one. Um, so we met, I never went back um, to that singles ward. So it worked for me. Um, and then we hung out, we dated all of that. Yay, single source success story, even though I never went back. So um, we, so I, I met with him and I'm talking to him. And then at the same time, I'm looking to do these temple endowment 
things. Also, I had never dated a member. I met my husband when I was 29. All the people I dated before were non-members. That's kind of how my parents were. They were so focused on, is it a good person? They were not focused on me getting married. My sister, who's three years younger than me, got married before me in the um, Orlando Temple. And they never pushed. It was really, I was so blessed to have the parents I had because there was no indoctrination in that way. But my husband was the first person I ever dated who was a member of the church. So I'm going through this journey on one end and I'm talking to this guy on this end. And um, I remember we lost touch for a little bit. Then he reached out and he said, hey, I, I got a job in Utah. I'm moving back to Utah. And we started talking again. And while I we were talking, I'm telling him about the temple endowments. And I told him that the senior missionary blessed this guy's heart. He started telling, discouraging me from getting my endowments. He started to say, well, are you sure you want to do that? You're not going on a mission. Um, it's kind of something special when you get married. So he's not telling me, but he's saying, don't do it. Don't do it because you're a single woman is what he was saying. And I didn't understand. I didn't know what it was. So I'm like, why shouldn't I do this? He also said things like, um, you know, the Sabbath day is holy. You, When I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to even um, do anything with my family on the Sabbath day. I remember I went sledding once, broke my arm, and my father said, because of me, um, an ER doctor is now working on Sunday because you decided to do this. So he was very old school thinking. Um, and God's it, very strict on that Sabbath day thing. If you break it, he breaks your arm. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's, that's how it works. And, and he's punishing, he's going to punish you for making an ER doctor work. So, um, my husband, we weren't, we were dating at the time. He's an ER resident. So I'm telling him like this guy, you know, he's, he's so cute, but he believes this. And, um, and my husband's like, that's ridiculous. You know, I'm an ER doctor. We work on Sunday because we have to work on Sunday. Just like Summer, you're a flight attendant. You work on Sunday because you have to work on Sunday. It has nothing to do with punishing or anything like that. I believe in keeping the Sabbath day holy, but holy cow, that's way out there. I tell him about the um, not taking out my endowments, and he got so mad. Um, he got on a mission. He knew what endowments were. He was livid that this guy was, in essence, saying, don't get your endowments unless you're getting married or going on a mission. So I just remember, again, we're friends, we're dating, but I remember him being so angry. But again, he can't tell me why. <laughs> he can't tell me what it means. But he just said, Summer, this is your decision. Do not listen to this guy. Um, you know, pray about it and whatever you think you should do, do. So long story short, I didn't end up going through with getting my endowments, but I started dating my husband and came out to Utah. And, um, that was my second time BYU being that brief period, second time coming out to Utah. Um, I was still a flight attendant. So I was able to kind of keep going back and forth, 
but it was a huge shift for me moving out here and kind of having my base out here. Um, I remember my husband saying, we should date exclusively. You should move out here. I'll get you an apartment. Um, and I prayed about it hard. And I remember calling my dad and he said, Summer, a stake president once told me, God gives you enough to take the first step, but then he asked you to take the next step in faith. And to me, that was the answer, right? I don't know how it was the answer, but it was to me at that time. To hear my dad say, take the next step in faith is what I was hearing. So I did. I moved out from the East Coast, moved to Utah, and that's where my being Black in Mormonism experience began because the Utah culture is completely different than the East Coast culture. And I didn't have my mom anymore to make that bubble for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember uh, within three months of moving to Utah, I went to a family ward with my husband and I was sitting behind this cute little girl. She's probably three. And she pointed at me and said, look, mommy, a Lamanite. Um, which I, I remember kind of laughing, but it was so weird because I was thinking I'm not even, I'm not native American. So where are we even, but to her, a three-year-old, there's a curse of dark skin. And I was the first person she'd ever seen of color. So she innocently, you know, thought I was a Lamanite. Um, so that was, again, I didn't take offense, but it, I was very, um, shocked. It was, it was different. Um, then about a year later, um, I was asked to say prayer, I think in sacrament and this lady in relief society, again, sweet woman after my prayer came up to me and asked how long I'd been a member of the church. And I said, oh, I've been a member my whole life. My parents are converts. Um, and she said, oh, I can tell because of the way that you pray. Um, she said, is your dad like a, um, a Baptist or something? And I said, yeah, actually. She says, yeah, I can tell. Um, my When I was on my mission, I had a lot of Baptists. Long story short, growing up for 30 years, when I would pray everywhere, I would say you. So instead of thou and thee, right. I was very informal with my God. So I would say, thank you for all that you've given me. Um, had no idea. I mean, I'm saying 30 years, no one said anything. And obviously I'm hearing prayers on the East Coast the same way because we I never changed my vernacular. But she said this and I became very, um, what's the word? Self-conscious. Self-conscious. Self -conscious. Yeah. yeah. It took me a while before I said a, a public prayer again. I remember being at home and practicing because I was like, oh, I guess this isn't, isn't the right way. It was so bizarre. Um, 
And then for her to kind of be like, well, you know, is your dad Southern Baptist? Again, RFM, the Baptist, they always come up. Um, it was it was a punch to the gut because it, it felt it felt very exclusionary. Right. To say, well, how long have you been? You must be a convert because you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. So um, those were some experiences I had when I moved here. I didn't. Um, it was still OK because I was still flying back and forth. So I wasn't completely ingrated in Utah yet. Um, loved Utah, though. It was gorgeous. I just couldn't understand the lack of diversity, not just in color, but in thoughts in, you know, you can't say you in a prayer. It was just mm -hmm. so weird. It's like, as long as you're connecting, what does it matter? No, that is not important. Connecting is not what it's about, Summer. It's about, you don't diss the Mormon God. You may diss the Baptist God. You don't diss the Mormon God. The Mormon God demands respect, damn it. Right. Cross your these and dot your thighs. <laughs> so anyway, um, that was the, the beginning. And then I ended up retiring from um, becoming a flight, from being a flight attendant. I wanted to be home and um, started having kids and all of that in, in my in my career, I just said, I'm, I'm just going to be a stay-at-home mom, right? And my husband, thankfully, um, was able to provide that. But he is um, he is still very much a, a believing member, right? And so I would talk to him. He's very logical, ER doc. But I would still um, ask questions about things here and there. Um, and he he would engage with me, but we would just leave it, right? It didn't go too deep. And then last November happens. That is our, we got married in the Bountiful Temple. Um, he promised me um, a wedding in Hawaii at the Laie Temple. And we end up getting married in December in Bountiful in the mountains with snow. Wow. Well, you promised your dad two years at BYU too. So <laughs> yeah. it goes around, comes around. How did that happen? Um, I come from a traveling family and his is not. And so he said, if we do do it in Hawaii, um, I won't have a lot of family there. So I mm. said, okay, fine. And we were looking to do a spring wedding, but then he said, I want to start the new year. So we ended up just doing it in December. Um, we got married within three months of me moving to Utah, which was a shock to everyone who knows me because I was just not. I mean, again, he's the first LDS guy I ever dated. So that wasn't normal. And Summer, uh, you were telling your story and you said last November, then that picture was put up on the screen. You weren't married last November. No. I was that was an interruption. Right. 20, 2010. So we're going on 13 years this past December. But um, this, when, when I would talk to him, I remember um, in our previous home, this was, give me a second, 2014. Um, I stumbled across the uh, priesthood ban essay, and I remember reading it on the East Coast. They never talked about the priesthood ban ever. We knew it happened, but we didn't have a reason. No one ever guessed why. It just was something that happened, but it's been fixed. So I come across this essay. I don't even remember how I found it, but I came across it and it gave more context to what I already knew. I never heard of Elijah Abel. 
Um, so to hear of a black man who had the priesthood and then have it taken away was devastating to me to hear that it wasn't just a priesthood ban. It was a temple ban. Um, I'm reading this and I feel as though the essay was trying to give you information so that you're not worrying, but it gave me more questions. And, um, I was very upset. My father is American descendant of slavery. He's ADOS. He's traced his lineage to an eight-year-old um, boy, Silas Burgess, that came over in a slave ship. So that is my ancestors. Those are my ancestors who were told, you cannot go in the temple. You need a white woman to act as a proxy. Um, I had no idea, no clue. And I remember reading, I actually pulled it up so I can, I can actually quote it. I remember in the essay reading, um, in two speeches delivered before the Utah Tutorial Legislator in January and February, Brigham Young announced a policy restricting men of Black African descent. At the same time, President Young said that at some future day, Black church members would, quote unquote, have all the privilege and more enjoyed by other members. And I remember reading that and thinking, that is kind of weird, right? It's weird the way they're quoting it. And I don't remember Brigham Young ever saying that we would have it in the future. So then I did research and I started reading. And that was, um, sorry, in... 2018, I kind of just prayed about it, didn't understand why. But then last November, I read it again. And that's when I saw the Brigham Young quote and thought, I'm going to look into this. And I saw that that's not exactly what he said. What did he say? He said that pretty much the Black race would not get the priesthood until every other race received the priesthood. And he he, um, uh, what's the word? He doesn't explicitly say it, but what he's saying is in the next life. Yes. In the resurrection. In the resurrection. Because yeah. everybody, all the white people, we have to have the chance to get the priesthood first before the first black person gets a chance to have the priesthood, according to Brigham Young. So now you're looking at this essay yeah. and now this last November, once again, you're revisiting the essay. You look at the Brigham Young quotes, you find out that the church is trying to pull a fast one on you yeah, by misquoting Brigham Young and saying that Brigham Young is saying something different than what he's actually saying by quoting only a portion of what he said and omitting the rest of the sentence. Right. How does that all make you feel? It, it felt like the ground was coming up from underneath me because I did not understand again I'm so blessed. I keep saying this, but the way I was raised to think outside the box, to not judge the God that I know wouldn't do that. And so I was kind of upset with myself with never looking into it before, but then I thought I wouldn't have been ready for it. This, this need to happen now. And, um, I was, I was upset that I never knew and that I'm 
forward facing this member of the church, not knowing this history, if that makes sense. I felt like a fraud myself because I'm reading these essays, not essays, sorry, I'm reading these articles about Brigham Young University. We need to change the name. And I'm reading all these articles on Deseret News and not really reading them. I'm thinking, I mean, he probably said some dumb things, but why do we have to change the name of the university? I never dug deeper. And so to read this and say, wait a minute, not only is this being held from me, but this is not the God that I know. The God I know is no respect of persons. Um, to also know as a woman of color that it wasn't just a priesthood ban. Women of color were not allowed in the temple. Changes everything. Because I grew up in the church. Everything is about eternal salvation. Everything is about the celestial kingdom. Everything is about sealing. I was sealed to my parents in the D.C. temple. So to hear that there's a period of time where you weren't allowed to do that was very difficult for me to wrap my head around. So, oh, go ahead. Oh, and I don't mean to interrupt you at all. I just know there's a, a number of pictures and your family's going to play into the rest of your story that you'll be telling us tonight. Yes. Were you ready to go there? Um, Not yet. Okay. I'm look, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the picture list right here. Um, okay. No, I'm going to go to um, how the guys on the screen right now changed my life. That's what I'm going to next. Mr. RFM and Mr. Real there, and Amanda. This is, this is my favorite part of the show. This is what I've been looking forward to. <laughs> so this is November of 2022, and I start looking at all the essays, but the biggest one is the, the priesthood ban. I start looking at him to Brigham Young. I find out the things that he said, um, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, swirling right now, right? I don't know which way's up. I, I'm still going to church, still active, no problems. But the YouTube algorithm hits me and I discover Mormon Mormon discussions. And Bill, your, your liar liar was one of the first that I watched. And I was, and it helped me because I'm now in a space saying these are men, right? They make mistakes. So I'm looking at Brigham Young and I'm I'm trying to the cognitive dissonance is kicking in. So listening to Liar Liar really helped me because I it just gave me another um example of guys, these guys make mistakes kind of thought process. Um then I listened to um there were a few. I actually wrote them down. There were a couple. I thought um, that Liar Liar episode by Bill helped you out because it helped Bill out of the church. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I just want to know, there's, it's more than they make mistakes. They intentionally lie. Yes. So, but I wasn't there yet. I wasn't right. there yet. <laughs> I, was, I was still trying to, you know, okay, um, lying for the Lord. You know, I, I really was trying to make this all make sense. But I will say, you guys did an episode, I don't know the name of it, but you did an episode which blew my mind and it mentioned Robert, uh, Robbie Peter, um, Peterson, Apostle 
Peterson. Marky? Yeah, Marky Peterson. Marky Mark Peterson? Yes. The apostle? Talked about his quotes, what he did. It was kind of, it was, it's older one. Because you did a, a recent one about four months ago, which was amazing as well. Kind of breaking down racism. It would have probably been, I might even time. have it here, but Marky Peterson and Marion G. Romney talking about, uh, yes. it'd be better that somebody came home in a casket than having lost yep. their virtue. Yep. Yeah. And talking about um, how in conference they had a picture and they said, look at this Native American girl. She's learning the, she's accepting the gospel. Her skin is lighter than her parents. You guys did a full episode with notes and and clips. I don't even remember the name of it. I've looked for it since. But um, Mark E. Peterson was a turning point for me because I had no idea. No idea. He he's rough. If if no one knows his stuff, it's 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 tough. And to think now I've got. Brigham Young and the things that he said and did. And now I'm going to Marky Peterson. This is an apostle. The things he said, I'm like, what, what is happening? Uh, Of all the people in the world, why are these the people that are being called to be the mouthpiece of the Lord? So that's where I was. Um, It's, it is a difficult place to be. I'm going to be honest because I realize that um, for a lot of people, when I talk to people about it that are members, they will say, I don't have a problem with church history. I don't have a problem with that um, because they're not directly affected by it. And that's what makes me sad because I don't feel as though you should have to be directly affected by it. It is They are my ancestors, but I could very well say I'm not directly affected by it as well. But when you have empathy for groups outside of yourself, it's hard to turn a blind eye again once you see it. Um, so that's where I was in December, January of 2023, February of 2023, struggling with that. So just a year ago and less. Just a year ago. So November 2022 is when it started. And then, yeah, I started Lindsay Hansen Park. I read the happiness letter. So it just kind of snowballed, but um, still went to church, still, you know, not a big deal. And then I saw on Facebook an event with the infamous Bill Real and Amanda. And John DeLynn is saying, also, funny story, I didn't even know who John DeLynn was. I'd never heard of the CES letter. I mean, this is how... I'm shocked at how protected we are when we're in that bubble. Um, because now that the bubbles popped, it's like, how the heck did I not know these people? But this. So is if I could just re, uh, underscore this, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is you knew about Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real before you'd ever even heard of John DeLynn. Is that correct? That is what I'm saying. Thank I you. John. I can die now. John knows. I, I've already <laughs> talked to him about this. But I did not, the algorithms did not send me to Mormon stories first. They, um, I went, I saw a lot of your guys' things. I remember before meeting you, Bill, I remember listening to the excommunication and something that you said in there stood out to me so much. And I still remember it. You were talking to them about 
nuanced faith and how in Catholicism and in Judaism, you there's a spectrum and you're still welcomed as a Jew and you're still welcomed as a Catholic. I'm paraphrasing what you said. Um, you said it so much better, but it hit me because I have a step-grandfather who is Jewish. Like I said, I have Catholic, Hindu, all of that. And to, um, to be in a faith where I was thinking, why is it? Why is it so dogmatic? Why is it we can't be nuanced, right? I grew up nuanced. So that's what my experience was. And that's what I thought this faith was. But then I'm now hearing that there are people that were excommunicated, Sam Young, for saying bishops shouldn't be behind closed doors. It, it blew my mind because the bubble I was in, I knew none of these names. I knew none of these people. So when I heard what you were saying, I realized then that the Mormonism I grew up with was not the dogmatic one that is in the Utah culture. Unfortunately, there is no nuance. Yeah, or preached by the leaders. It's not the Mormonism that's been taught and emphasized. It's it's right. Yeah, I I also existed out in the mission field, you know, went to church in Ohio for decades. It was such a different story. We didn't even know anything that was going on out here. Didn't know anything that leaders had said in the past. Didn't and, and suddenly you get out here and just the culture's different. And then when you start paying attention to the history, you realize that the church has just been really unhealthy about the things that it's taught and imposed that came from God. Yeah. And, and what I've realized, to be honest, as I get older is um, when I was younger, they say the church is the gospel's perfect. The people are not. And I've realized the people are what makes the church. Honestly, um, the reason why um, I'm able to go to the war that I go to right now is because of the people. So it's, it's interesting that the older I get, it's actually flipped. The people are the servers. The people are what makes this church what it is. Um, and that was something that was very difficult to unlearn because you're always hearing gospel's perfect, gospel's perfect. People aren't. So you're looking at your word family and you're like, oh, they're going to mess up. But this is perfect. The leaders are perfect. And I just had to flip that because my ward members are the ones that are there for me. And they're the ones that are honest with me and all that stuff. So that's where I was. And then I met you and Amanda and John Dillon. At, that was May of 2023. That was my first event that I'd ever gone to that was um, post-Mormon or um, searching Mormon, whatever you call it. Um, that was my first one. And then I heard about Sunstone. And I went to Sunstone in July. And that's when I met RFM. And I said, this guy, I'm going to listen to his talk. And you did a great, great um, thing. Your lesson, talk. Thing. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a, a genuine pleasure meeting you there. Yes. And I will say um, Sunstone was exactly what I heard you talking about, Bill, where Lindsay says, you know, there's more than one way to Mormon. That's what I felt there. It was the first time since moving to Utah where I just saw the spectrum, right? There's polygamists there. There are Exmos there. 
There are faithful members there. There's TBM. I mean, it was amazing to have the diversity of thought under this banner. And that's what I had at home. That's what I had on the East Coast. And it was amazing to see that here. And so um, shout out to Lindsay Hansen Park for putting on Sunstone. It's amazing. And if anybody can make it, make it. I, they have so many different topics that you can just pick a topic. It's not, you know, one way. Um, but yeah, that was my Sunstone experience. And that's kind of when um, the pieces started to come together that um, I'm going to tell you what the bit, the hardest part for me in my faith journey has been. It has been coming from a place of knowing everything and getting to a place of saying it's okay not to know. Because coming from a place of all the answers are answered, right? We know why we're here. We know our purpose, all of that missionary stuff to wanting to jump to another no. I don't want to leave this lily pad and jump to another one without knowing. I had to get to a place where I said, it's okay to not know. I can keep searching. It's okay to connect to the a divine being above me without knowing for sure. And that's something I had to unlearn. There's All a saying about that. Maybe you've heard it. I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than have answers that can't be questioned. Love that. I've never heard that, but I want to put that as a banner because that's literally the, that's the scariest part, right? You know everything. People come to you and ask, you have these answers and you go from there to, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know if those experiences I felt before were real. I mean, everything is questioned. And then you just have to kind of sit down and ground yourself and say, it's okay. That's okay. I don't have to know. I don't have to know. I may know next year. I may know next month, but I don't have to know right now. And that's okay. So that's where I got, um, I struggled. Um, I, I struggled in June of last year. I lost my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, the only grandmother I've ever known. And that was the first time I had questions and I did not have answers because I'm deconstructing. I'm trying to figure out what's real, what's not. And she's gone. And I just remember that was the first time I had not anger, but I want to say it was stronger, like animosity towards the church and gospel, not even animosity, but a deep, um, I just, I'll just say angry because I felt like I was robbed of my grieving process. I couldn't, I was grieving, but I didn't even know what was happening to her. Where are we? And I felt like I was told all these things and was believing all these things. And now that's being taken away. And now I lose my grandmother and I don't know. I don't know where she is. I thought I knew. Um, and so I went through that process and that's when I got to the point where I said, it's okay not to know. I, I feel she's in a good place. That's all I need. So that's, 
that. So that's June when your grandmother passes. July, you go to Sunstone. Yes. And then uh, bring us up to date or go through any of the remaining photos you have or whatever it is you'd like to tell our audience. Okay. So um, we, let me think here. So June, I lose my grandmother. I lost my grandmother right when my um, mother was getting remarried. My mother got remarried in June um, to her best friend. Uh, he's been there since I was yay high. I mean, diapers was when they became friends. They're right there in the middle. Um, my mother is gorgeous. So these are my siblings and, and um, my bonus siblings. But uh, my mother got married in June and then we got home and then we, my grandmother was taken off the ventilator a week before the wedding. She was fine. And so it was, it was hard. It was quick. Um, but we know that she was ready and she's just in a great place. Um, my, I call him uncle Blair. Cause like I said, he's been my mom's best friend for over 40 years and I, he's family. He's been family. Um, he's the best bonus dad ever. Um, I was, I, I was telling RFM, I'm excited about Shakespeare because my mom used to read Shakespeare to me since I was four years old. And my uncle Blair played, um, measure for measure. We kept saying merchant of Venice <laughs> measure for measure in, um, New York city when I was 13. And he gave me this book. I brought it. It is my first book of sonnets. So you see that and he wrote on it. Um, love him so much. So this is where my the beginning of my love for Shakespeare was. Kevin Klein was the Duke. There we go for that. And he dedicated sonnet number 18. But um, Michael Blair is not a member. My mother still is. So they're mixed faith. Um, Can I stop you for just a second and make the obvious observation, a necessary redundancy, that Blair's last name appeared on that page where he signed his name. His last name is Underwood. Isn't yeah. that true? It's Blair Underwood. Blair Underwood. I call is him Uncle B. Stepdaddy Uncle B. And By the way, Blair Underwood, for those of you who don't know, you can Google. And you can go back as far as L.A. law, if you like, or even up to the present. Uh, he's a very famous, at least I believe so, actor. Famous enough for me to know and to recognize. So Blair Underwood is now your dad, but he's been a friend of your mom's ever since. Yes. Uh, she was young. He was young. And now uh, your parents got divorced yes. some time ago. Now your mom has married to her longtime friend, Blair Underwood. And I want that picture back up because, you know, you all look fantastic and marvelous, but your mom is stealing the show. Stunning, right? Yes, in that dress. Right? That, I'm telling you, that dress was chef's kiss, really. Oh, yeah. Got it done, and the dressmaker came to the Dominican Republic to, to put her in it. She, I feel like this is the epitome of my mother. She is just amazing and but she's balanced she's always been balanced she has christ in her life she has the gospel in her life but it's she is she blazes her own path and so um i love my mom love my mom 
And so, but can I ask where this location is with the two obelisks? I know you said Dominican Republic, but more specific, where is this place? This was Casa de Campo. It's a resort down there. Um, the The whole wedding was in People Magazine last summer, so um, anyone can like look it up at this point. But it was it's a beautiful destination. And my mom said, I want you guys to all wear white. And we did, but she still stole the show. She's just amazing. <laughs> yes, she sure did. So, and that's not a diss on anybody else there, but there's Blair Underwood, the groom, right next to her. Look and fly, as usual. My Uncle Blair knows how to dress, too. And, um, yeah, these are my bonus siblings and my siblings. Um, and funny enough, they all, my siblings, all live in Utah now. So um, they all followed me out here. Both my parents live here now. And so it's I've got my own little tribe out here, which is amazing. And a couple of my bonus siblings I'm trying to get out here too. So it's um, it's great. But uh, we, we're a smorgasbord. Three of us still attend church. Three of us don't. And um, it's okay. I still go. My my husband, like I said, is is a believing member. Um, and so we still go, I, I take my kids, um, where I am right now personally is, um, I'm creating a bubble within a bubble, like my mother created for me, for my kids. Um, my oldest is 11 and she has anxiety and a little bit of scrupulosity, which I'm starting to see. Um, so I'm keeping an eye on that. Because, you know, like, uh, for example, last couple Sundays ago, I left early right after sacrament and they wanted to come home with me. So I, I said, oh, no, I don't have a problem with that. I told my husband he wanted them to stay. But I said, you know, they always stay. They can come home with me. So we went home early. I had something I had to do at home. And my oldest, when we got home, said, I just feel like something's going to happen to daddy because we left church early. I feel like he's going to get into a car accident and die. Mm -hmm. And that's where the scrupulosity comes into play. The anxiety mixed with OCD where you feel as though on a religious level, if you don't do certain things, bad things will happen. And I had a really good talk with her about it. Um, my youngest is the complete opposite. She's like, well, why would God kill daddy? He stayed. Um, <laughs> so That's that actually was, what I was thinking. That was my youngest. But the problem with scrupulosity, it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. It's just, you feel like someone needs to be punished. Mm -hmm. And so I told her, um, I said, honey, that's not the God that we know. And she said, what does that mean? I said, well, other people might believe that God punishes like that, but that's not, the God that we know he's loving. He would never have daddy get into a car accident because we left church early. That's just, he would never do that. Um, so right now that is where we are, where um, I'm just making sure that my children are protected from any type of harmful things right now while, you know, we work through, um, where we're going to be as a family. Okay. Well, I'm glad that she has you for a mother and that you're teaching her a version of Mormonism 
which I have seldom, if ever, encountered. Well, I, I try to tell her that we do not believe in a transitional God, that it's not as long as we do the good things that he will bless us and that's it. Um, because that's not the God that I was raised to believe in. When I wasn't going to church, I still believed that God was protecting me. He was still with me. Um, so I just want to make sure that my kids understand that, that it's not um, as long as you're good, you will get this. But if you are not, you will lose. Um, it, it, my love is not transitional for my children. It doesn't make sense that Heavenly Father's love, who's supposed to love us more than anything, would be transitional. So that's that's where I am with my kids. But it's a it's an everyday thing, you know, to just make sure that um, we keep the love of Christ, what we've been raised to believe in our home, um, and just be good to others. Just be good to others. That's it, you know. And stop abuse. It shouldn't be that hard, but Should've. somehow it is. Yeah. But I, um, that was, that was my journey. Um, I remember watching, um, RFM versus the Midnight Mormons. I enjoyed that a lot. Upside down flag and all. Um, so there were just a lot of things that you guys brought out there that I feel helped. And, and for the Christmas Eve special, Delin did mention community. And I just think that it's so important to have that, to know that people have been where you've been, they are where you are, and they are where you're going to be. Because it's tough. It is tough. But we are all on this journey called life. And so I'm just, I just want to say thank you guys for allowing this space, this space of understanding, this space of learning, but giving that space to, to not jump and say, you have to be here. Um, because I'm still searching. I'm still trying to figure it all out. Um, but it's nice here. You know, you guys make it cozy. Oh, thank you very much. It's been wonderful having you here. By the way, you have finished. Do you have anything else that you want to add, Summer? I don't want to, you know, abbreviate this prematurely. No, no. I thank you guys so much. I, it's been two hours. Thank you for staying and listening to my story. I hope it was helpful and entertaining to all of you guys out there. Um, yes, and keep listening to Mormonism Live because they rock. You heard it here, folks. So I want to give a chance for Maven or Bill to say anything else they want. By the way, we will not be taking calls tonight. Uh, I have to apologize. Uh, it's the crew. The phone crew is having trouble putting, um, you know, things together to make it work. And yeah, we're trying. Call in studio in the roadcaster don't cooperate. So oh, lately. Just Bill, give out your number. They can call you. Yeah. Absolutely. That's gone not good in the past. I've had speaker. I've had people call me on Sunday thinking <laughs> they be live. It's I'm true because they're watching the replay, right? And 80-year-old ladies are calling me and want to ask a question. thing I want to say is it feels like the winners in your story. I think you have handled your faith transition beautifully. People think I want people to leave. I could care less. You can stay. I think you're doing it really well. You're like you said, a bubble inside a bubble. You're going to teach your kids 
you're going to teach your the, your loved ones, you're going to teach your family, like, hey, this is what goes, and this is what I don't let go, and they'll pick up on that. That's all great. I think the losers in this conversation, the LDS Church for not doing better, but also the Cleveland Browns, and otherwise, that's yeah, all. They're used to it. Great, great and yeah, I'm used to it. It's decades and decades. We finally are. <laughs> they are. Yes. I mean, okay. you know, why why are the Cleveland Browns such good sports about losing? Because they've had so much practice. Yeah, that's right. Practice, practice, practice. It's just sad that all the people I've mentioned have been connected to the Browns in some way that was not good. And I didn't even know yeah. They were good memories for you, but not for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate the conversation. And, and thanks so much for sharing that. Maven, do you want to add anything before we sign off? No, I think this was a great episode. And I'm... I jumped in earlier with the the floodlit stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to know Summer. I'm happy that you're a part of my life and that that we are able to have this interaction. And then I'm grateful that you're my friend. Love you, Maven. You rock. You're awesome. And she's amazing. Amazing. Amazing, Maven. That's what she goes by. Before before we go, I never used to comment on YouTube videos ever. So I didn't have a, I didn't know what my name was. And watching you guys, I saw Maven. And so I actually went by Winter Raven. That's you? That was me. You're Winter Raven? I'm Winter Raven. Actually, Maven knew that because Flood Lit, we kept it Winter Raven. But I never told you, Maven, it was an homage to you. I wanted Maven to match in summer, winter. Winter. Wow. And for you, because I think you're just awesome. You guys, all of you guys are just amazing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. We'll close it on that note. Summer, thank you so much for coming on. Maven, Bill, wonderful as always to the audience. Thank you for watching. Please hit like. Please hit subscribe. Please share this with your friends and family, especially the ones you don't like. And we'll see you next week, Wednesday, 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time. Same bat time, same bat channel on Mormonism Live.